next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will arise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us. Lord, the risen body of Jesus was the body of proof. And yet today, Lord, there is another body of proof, and we're going to learn about it today. Lord, you you are proving yourself afresh in the lives and in the hearts of people. You're doing so through your body. We thank you for the risen body of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that that body would again grow and flex and move and be a light to this lost world. Please speak to our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Body of Proof was a television series that aired from 2011 to 2013. The story is about Dr. Megan Hunt, formerly a brilliant neurosurgeon who was banished from the operating room when she suffered a tragic automobile accident. Dr. Megan resurrects her career as a medical examiner. No longer does she use her expertise to save lives, but she examines victims and their cause of death to help bring answers and closure to their loved ones. As the doctor says in one of the inaugural shows, if you look close enough, the body reveals all the answers. And the body of Jesus also provided us all of the answers. When Jesus was taken off the cross, his was the body of proof. That's why the Jews who hated and crucified Jesus did all they could to keep that body tucked away in a tomb, sealed with a stone, even guarded by military troops. His body would be the ultimate proof. You know, it's interesting the apprehension that lingered in the minds of Jesus' enemies after they succeeded in mocking his claims and extinguishing his life. Matthew chapter 27 tells us what happened on the Saturday afterwards. You know, we commemorate Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday. We celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. But between those two days, there was an uneasy, doubt-filled Saturday when precautions were taken. The Jews had contemplated what Jesus had said, and they remembered his words, words that even his own followers had forgotten. Jesus had stated, after three days, I will rise. Apparently, his enemies believed him more than his friends. So against all odds, the Jews anticipated their reaction in the event that Jesus pulled a rabbit out of the hat and did what none of them thought that he could do. He had surprised them countless times before with the miraculous. Now they were unwilling to put anything past him. None of them admitted he could actually rise 
But they invented a counter explanation just in case he did. And that's why they paid a visit to the praetorium to solicit the help of Governor Pilate. The Jews suggested that maybe the disciples would launch a ruse, a con to bolster Jesus' claim as Messiah. His men might come at night, steal the corpse, and then report that he had risen from the dead. I'm sure they didn't really believe this could happen. These Jews, they had informants. They had intelligent sources spying on the disciples. They knew at that very moment Jesus' men were hiding in the shadows for fear of suffering the same fate as their Lord. No way would they come out of the closet, out into the open, to try such a risky maneuver. They, They were laying low. And notice what the Jews didn't suggest. No one claimed that Jesus had simply swooned on the cross, that he had fell unconscious due to a loss of blood and the trauma of crucifixion. You know, later skeptics will make that claim, but it never crossed the minds of the men who witnessed his suffering firsthand and saw his body taken off the cross. They couldn't deny the obvious. His body was proof of his death. The Jewish leaders who were jealous of Jesus, they knew that possession of the body was crucial to them controlling the narrative. As long as they possessed Jesus' corpse, no one would believe that he had risen from the dead. And thus their request of Pontius Pilate, let's seal him up tight. And Pilate agreed. First he rolled a stone over the mouth of the tomb. It was a heavy stone chiseled to fit into the channel running across the tomb's opening. The stone and the channel clamped down like a lock nut. Pilate then issued an order and he sealed the stone. He attached a wax seal, the official insignia of Rome. If broken, the perpetrator would be executed. It was a symbol of the most powerful human authority on earth. They rolled a stone and they sealed a stone. And finally, they posted next to the stone a military detachment. Armed soldiers stood guard to protect the tomb from tampering. The frightened disciples wouldn't approach it now. Jesus' body was buried behind obstacles and authority and force. But none of these three things, not physical obstacles or human authority or military force, is stronger than the resurrection power Of Jesus Christ. For three days later, after he was crucified, the body they had tried to control broke free. Like a bird escaping its cage, the body of Jesus pried loose from the clutches of Satan and shed the penalty of sin and overcame death and defeated the grave and frightened off the guard dispatched to seal the tomb. The body they thought was under tabs on a cold slab and locked away forever, came bounding from that grave. Pilate rolled the stone to seal Jesus up tight, but God rolled the stone back to let the world see that Jesus was alive. You know, I read this week how the world offers promises full of emptiness, but Easter offers emptiness full of promises. For the empty tomb promises us hope and life and even a better world. But here's my point this morning. The body of Jesus controlled the narrative. The Jews knew this. Pilate knew it. God certainly knew it. The body 
controlled the narrative. Hey, you see an empty tomb. You see a body risen, and faith is alive. But produce a dead Jesus. Present a corpse for the world to examine, and Christianity would have been dead in the water. A fairy tale start with a brutal ending. A plane shot down on takeoff. If the body didn't rise, folks would have never believed. It's interesting that over the many years, Christianity's detractors have attacked the faith on this very point. They deny Jesus' bodily resurrection. Oh, they might believe that Jesus rose in spirit, that the life force of Jesus is now alive in the world today. You know, the doubters say that it doesn't really matter that his body remains in the grave. There was a late Episcopal bishop, John Shelby Spong. I suppose he was a Christian in name, but in name only. He was actually a heretical priest who tried to untether the Christian faith from the Bible and the traditional creeds of the church. He sought to create a progressive, humanistic version of Christianity that denied miracles and the supernatural. Spawn said that faith in the Bible, in revealed truth, required the twisting of a 21st century mind into a pretzel. Here's what Spong said about the Easter miracle. He says, I don't think the resurrection has anything to do with physical resuscitation. I think it means the life of Jesus was raised back into the life of God, not into the life of this world, and that it was out of this that his presence, not his body, was manifested to certain witnesses. You see, the heretical priest says that Jesus rose spiritually and returned to God, but in the physical world, all that really occurred was the start of a vibe, an optimism. His grave was still intact. His body was still on ice. There was no literal historical resurrection. Jesus' body was still dead. And yet the Bible itself, and the Apostle Paul in particular, warned us about heresies spouted by men like Bishop Spong. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 through 17, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Paul is saying if there is no literal actual bodily resurrection. There is no Christianity. If Jesus' body still lies in the grave, then the devil still holds the victory, and sin has no solution, and death is still in force, and the grave is a stopping point, not a pit stop. And so again, his body controls the narrative. The truth of the body's importance was hammered home to me recently in a very emotional and visceral and gut-wrenching way. Most of you are familiar with my oldest son's recent battle with COVID-19. Zach was in a drug-induced coma from January the 7th through February the 3rd. For almost a month, his body was asleep, and we were unable to communicate with Zach in any meaningful way. And for a lot of that time, we watched him get worse. First, there was a swelling and there was a terrible rash. Then came a mysterious fever that sort of came and went. 
At times his heart beat so fast that it acted like it wanted to pound out of his chest. And we had no idea the damage that had occurred or was being done. I dreaded the CAT scans and the pictures we had to look at of his horribly scarred lungs. The guesses the doctors would make about the possibility of brain damage, it drove me crazy. Damaged my own brain, I think. The last Saturday in January, I spent all day by Zach's bedside. I knew his body was alive, but it seemed as if he was a corpse. I wasn't sure if I'd ever get my son back. On the way home that day, I remember calling the elders of our church and asking for their prayers. It was a really rough day. But my Saturday was nothing compared to the disciples' Saturday. Imagine these men knew the body of Jesus was a corpse. I wondered if my son was alive, but they knew their Lord was dead. The condition of Zach's body controlled the narrative in my life, and I'm sure the body of Jesus dictated the faith of his disciples. His followers had a promise that Jesus would rise the third day, but that's hard to believe when the body you see is dead. And likewise, I believe God to be a good God, I prayed with all my heart for him to heal my son, but it's hard on a heart, and it's difficult to have faith when you're staring at a body that just won't wake up. To finish my story, the next week, Zach got worse. The doctors were able to wean him off the medicines, but his coma still persisted. And on that next Wednesday, the doctor called us to prepare us for the worst, sent us a report. The last line of it read, I am worried that he may not recover from this illness. Just before I hung up the phone, I asked him, Doctor, what would you need to see happen in order to give Zach a positive prognosis? He said two things. First, he needs to wake up. And second, his breathing needs to improve. Well, the rest of that Wednesday and into Thursday, I wrestled and I prayed for God to wake up Zach and to help him breathe. The only peace I could find was to put my son into God's hands and leave him there. And lo and behold, less than 24 hours later, it was Thursday afternoon when Zach opened his eyes. He woke up. It was as if God had said to me and my family, I have chosen for Zach to live. My wife, the nurse, was still worried. She was not as excited to see Zach wake up as I was, and her concerns were warranted. Being awake created new challenges for him. But for me, when my son's body seemingly came back to life, it boosted my faith. It was easier for me to believe now. I felt I had a promise from God that I could trust that Zach was going to live. Zach's animated body was now a proof a body of proof. God was not through with him. He still had purposes for my son. I'll never forget two weeks later when they plugged his trach in order to let him speak. It was the first time we'd heard our son's voice in six weeks. We didn't know if he still had a voice or if his mind worked well enough to use his voice. I want to share this moment with you. What I'm going to do, since you don't have the vet blowing air into you, some of the air is still coming out through your trach, so I want you to take a deep breath, and I'll put my finger into your trach, and so it's gonna help direct the air through your mouth, okay? So take a deep breath in, exhale. How's that feel? All right, take a deep 
My name is Zach Adams. He was quick to tell him he wasn't going to be in the hospital very long. But when I heard my son belt out, my name is Zach Adams, I wept like a baby. To this point, to this day, it brings tears to my eyes. I think it surprised Zach how loud he spoke it. But when we heard him speak, we knew he would preach again. I mean, here's my point. The body controlled the narrative. And this was the experience of Jesus' disciples. When the Lord rose from the dead, his body became the body of proof. They could now touch his scars in his hands and in his side. When they saw his risen body, they believed. For three and a half years, Jesus' body had performed miracles. Now they knew his body was the miracle. And for the next 40 days, his body was seen by his disciples in various places and at various times. Each sighting bolstered their faith. Every time their faith grew stronger, it was the appearance of the body that was slain but had risen that stirred their hearts and fortified their faith. The resurrected body of Jesus was the body of proof. At the end of those 40 days, Jesus took his disciples to a mountain outside Jerusalem. And on the Mount of Olives, they watched Jesus' body ascend into heaven. And we're told in John 20, verse 29, that days earlier, Jesus had said to one of his disciples, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus was speaking of us there. Thomas and his first disciples believed because they saw. We haven't seen, yet we believe. In a sense, we're more blessed than his first disciples. You and I believe, having never seen the body of Jesus. Oh, but wait. Is that true? Is that really true? Haven't we seen the body of Jesus Haven't you and I interacted with the body of Jesus even in our world today? We need to think again. Yes, the literal, actual, resurrected body of Jesus is now at the right hand of God going to bat for us. Jesus is there praying and pleading and petitioning the Father for us. Yet in another sense, we have seen a tangible expression of Jesus' body in the world today. Our faith has been influenced by seeing his body. That is, his body, the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Paul speaks to the believers in Corinth. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We have seen the body of Jesus. Just look around you this morning at the people next to you. We are his body. To the people sitting by your side, we are his hands and his feet and his lips. And the body of Christ is still the body of proof. Jesus is still on the move in our world today. He still has work to do and miracles to perform. But in going and doing, he uses us. He moves through our feet, 
He touches through our hands. He speaks through our lips. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that we're all members of his body, and each one of us has a specific function, that no two believers are redundant. We all have a special place. And when we're led by the Spirit and when we work together, we make up this beautiful and powerful body of Christ. And yet, sadly, over the last two years of this worldwide pandemic, in some places, the body of Jesus has been left for dead and buried. For the last two years, many believers have rolled the stone over the mouth of the tomb and have hid themselves from the virus. At times, people have stopped going to church in person and were online worshipers only. Last Easter, a Pew Research survey revealed that only 40% of Christians attended an in-person church service. And listen carefully. I can understand. Trust me. I've wondered that if I'd been more cautious, could it have saved my son some of what he's been through over the last four months? I'm a pastor who has now been impacted by this tragedy in as personal a way as possible. Caution is definitely warranted. That's why here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we're committed to providing a mask-only section in our sanctuary. And live stream is now a permanent part of what we do. For a variety of reasons, the live stream is a convenient and a healthy option for people. Folks who are elderly or sick or at work or traveling or out of town can still join us online. Hey, I am thankful for the technology. But I am also a pastor who reads my Bible. And there is an inescapable calling on Christians and on Christian communities to be the body of Christ in our world today. For just as Christianity would have died in its infancy without a body, the resurrected body of Jesus, likewise, even in the 21st century, the witness of Jesus is still incomplete without his body. You and I, his church, are now the living, breathing, touchable, audible, even resurrected body of Jesus. As we learned in Romans 6, we died with Christ and rose with him. Resurrection power now flows through us. We are his body of proof. I'll never forget speaking to a pastor friend of mine right after the pandemic hit and the churches began broadcasting their services online only. He told me how much he was enjoying the peopleless format. For him, less people meant less problems. He said as long as folks keep sending in their offering, he was fine with the arrangement and hoped it continued. I couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. He had totally thrown shade on the body of Christ. Friends, it is the body of proof. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus' body. To save us on the cross, Jesus had to die a physical death. Again, a body was necessary. Then to prove who he said he was, Jesus needed to overcome death. Thus, he had to rise bodily. And he has promised to come again, not just in spirit. No, his body is going to split the eastern sky and come in the clouds. And just as the body of Jesus is necessary to fulfill all these doctrines of Christianity, 
It is also needed today if the church is going to be and do and go and satisfy the purposes that God intends. For a body still drives the narrative. Christianity is not Christianity. Church is not church. Discipleship is not discipleship without his body. The term church used in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means the called out ones. It implies a gathering or an assembling of people. Now, of course, that's what exists on a Zoom call, an assembly, or in the comments section of a live stream. That's a gathering. And again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not against the use of these online tools. But you can no more reproduce a real church body online any more than you can substitute a spiritual resurrection for a real bona fide bodily resurrection. There are online churches today that offer communion and baptism through digital avatars. For me, that is a bridge too far. When I eat the bread, I want to crunch it between my teeth to remind me of the grinding that the body of Jesus endured for me. When I take that cup, I look for my reflection in the swirl of the wine to remind me that he did this for me. Communion reminds us of the real world sacrifice Jesus made for us. As in the case with my son, in the physical presence of a body, my experience becomes more real to me, more visceral, more emotional, more impactful. Something just gets lost in the virtual worship of cyberspace. You know, it's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, when the Hebrews were told to worship and sacrifice to God, they were required to leave their houses and journey to the temple. They were required to go up to Jerusalem. And often this journey was risky. Believe me, it's always, there's always some risk whenever we gather. Depending on where they lived, the pilgrims had to travel many miles and traverse dangerous terrain, even endure the threat of robbery or flash floods. Yet remaining at home and participating symbolically or remotely was not an option. There was something about the rubbing shoulders with random neighbors The journey exposed you to tribes and people groups with whom you didn't normally see or associate with. And this indiscriminate clumping together of different people was important in God's mind. Apparently, the impact this made on the worshiper was a needed part of their worship and their spiritual growth. In contrast, the problem with online worship is it doesn't force you to do anything taxing or inconvenient. Rather than encourage you to sit next to someone who doesn't look like you or who might smell, I mean, you can just worship and study from a distance. You can choose isolation. I just think that's why God told Israel to go up to the temple. For in a multitude of ways, it pushed them outside of their comfort zone. And God knew, he still knows, that a big part of worship is being pushed outside of your comfort zone. This is why he required the same of the New Testament Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 tells us, And let us, considering one another in order to stir up good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. I'm sure stirring up and exhorting can be done online, but body to body to body creates a more genuine and visible expression. Recently, I read an article in the New York Times of all places. It was entitled, What We Lose When We Live Stream Church. Author Colin Hansen, he writes this, The body of Christ, or church, isn't the same when you separate its members. The hands and feet and ears and eyes need to be assembled for this body to work for the good of all. Hansen admits that actual church is not as convenient as the virtual version. I mean, you can go to online church in your pajamas or before your daughter's travel soccer game at the Waffle House somewhere up in North Georgia or on the way home from your lake house. But there is much we lose when we abandon the nitty-gritty of on-site, buns-in-the-seat, shoulder-to-shoulder church. The article goes on to suggest that believers today need to hear babies crying in a sanctuary because it reminds us of the next generation that we're responsible to train. They need to see Bobby Joe's friend that they've been praying for walk into the building with Bobby Joe where it shouts to us that God still hears and answers our prayers. Rather than click a mouse after a few minutes and log on to another church's live stream, we should be forced to actually have to sit here and listen to the musicians hit a sour note or sing out of tune or listen to a sermon that may not be the pastor's best. And why? Because both are subtle reminders that God uses imperfect instruments, and that includes you. We need to bump into the guy who's hung over but came that morning out of guilt. He could use someone to put his arm around him and extend him some grace. We need to be there when the homeless person sits quietly through the service only to afterwards ask for a little help. We need to be there to give it to them. We need to taste the bread and the wine, really taste it. And we need to feel the anticipation in the room at the beginning of the service or even the tension in the air during the altar call. It's good for us to feel these things. We need to be there to applaud when the new believer rises from the baptismal waters and certainly loud enough for them to hear us. We need the sensation of fighting back the natural embarrassment we feel when we raise our hands in praise. Hey, I need the embrace of your hand squeezing my hand. At the very least, your knuckles rubbing my knuckles. It reminds me that the body of Christ is not just theoretical. It's really a body with hands and with feet. Reminds me of the old grandpa who could no longer hear or see. Yet he attended church every single Sunday. One day his kids questioned him, said, Gramps, why do you still go to church? You don't see anyone. and You don't hear anything they say. Just seems like a waste of time. That's when the old man answered, The reason I go to church is I want everyone to know whose side I'm on. And I think that speaks a profound truth. For there is an accountability that exists. And there is a witness that is expressed 
When your car rolls out of your driveway on Sunday mornings and heads to church, your neighbors see. They take notice. Trust me, they do. Over time, they put two and two together. It's accountability to you, and it's a witness to them, and it really does matter. For the six weeks in March and April of 2020, when we shut down our in-person services, boy, it didn't take long before new and younger believers began to struggle They miss the accountability and the camaraderie of just being together with like-minded people. We underestimate that sometimes. Church served as a reminder that they weren't in it alone, that they were part of a family, a real community of faith. And over time, this is a remembrance that all Christians need. In fact, the body of Christ, the church, is what the whole world needs. Imagine a world without this body of proof. Just a church online, meeting in the webs of cyberspace somewhere. Would we touch as many lives? Could we show as much love? Would our impact be as tangible and as effective? Of course it wouldn't. Remember, Jesus served people, and he washed their feet. He knocked off the street dust off their feet and pointed them to a better way. How is that done without a body that can stoop? and lift, and lend a hand. Oh, we can broadcast sermons on the internet, but again, something is lost when the world can't see people living out those sermons in imperfect, but in sincere ways. How do you look people in the eye and tell them the truth in love without a body that enables that form of communication? Trust me, texting and YouTube won't bandage wounds and heal hurts. If it did, God would have emailed us or logged us onto his website. Instead, he became one of us. He came to us. He sent Jesus a body to teach us physically and tangibly. See, a big part of Christianity is the ministry of presence. This is how healing occurs and love is conveyed by being with one another. And sometimes that's all you can do is just be with one another. There is a lost world out there, and trust me, it's getting more and more lost by the minute that doesn't share our Christian worldview, nor does it relate to God in truth. If this world is to believe in the risen Christ, it needs to see his body. We need to be Jesus' hands and feet and tongue as individuals on a daily basis, but also together, you and I, need to be the living Lord's body of proof. You remember when you purchased Christmas gifts for your children and the packaging read those dreaded words, some assembly required? Well, the same is true for the church. Yes, online tools and virtual meetings can be used on occasion. I appreciate their convenience. But some assembly is still required. Together, we are a body, the body of Christ, and his body still drives the narrative. If I stood here today and declared that Jesus has risen in spirit, whether or not his body came back really doesn't matter. You would storm this pulpit and throw me out on my ear, and rightly so. But to a lesser degree, some of us have said in regards to the church that it's the spirit of Christ that matters, And whether or not the body returns is secondary. 
I suggest that's just as false. Just as the risen Christ was the body of proof for first century believers, today the church serves as the body of proof for 21st century believers. In the first century, people didn't believe unless they saw his body. And folks today won't believe without seeing the body of Christ in action. As we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection power in the world today is the love that you and I express toward one another. As Colin Hansen concludes in his New York Times op-ed, the church wasn't just a bridge of 2,000 years until humanity reached peak Zoom. Gathering in person is essential for the religion where God took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's essential in a faith that believes Jesus physically rose from the dead and then sat down to enjoy a meal with stunned friends. And a physically gathered church is essential if we're going to fulfill our mission and share the gospel with the folks around us. This is what many people in our society forgot in the weeks that followed the initial coronavirus outbreak. Let's not forget it next time. Let's be cautious medically and socially responsible as not to spread the contagion. I'm all for that. But equally so, let's not forget that some assembly is required. Our gathering together is definitely essential. The church is the body of our living Lord Jesus. Folks learn of him by looking at us. Some people will never know the risen Christ if we don't take seriously our calling to be his feet and his hands. Let's celebrate the risen Jesus by being his body, his body of proof to a needy world.